The reading is from Acts 19, 21 to 41, and can be found on page 116 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. Acts 19, 21 to 41. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sarah, thank you very much for that reading. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to look at what God wants to say to us through that passage. Father God, help us to have ears to listen to what your word has to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, something strange has been happening to my mobile phone over the last couple of weeks. I have a picture that's going to be on the screen now, um, if you can see it there. That's not my phone but it is very similar to what's happened to my phone. You can see how the, the case has warped and bent like that. And uh, a friend of mine who knows a lot about these sorts of things came around this week, and I showed him it. I was charging my phone, and I showed him it. And he immediately went, if I were you, I would take the charger out of that phone. 
I would turn it off, I would put it in a cool, dark place and leave it for a good long while until it goes back to normal. I said, why? Well, if that's happening, the reason it's happening is your battery inside that phone is swelling because it's not processing the power that you're putting into the phone very well. And if you keep putting power into it by keeping it charged, keeping it plugged in, they've got safeguards, they've got fail-safes, but there's just a danger that it'll go boom. And if a lithium battery goes boom, it really goes boom. So very quickly I unplugged it, felt suitably humble and, you know, a bit scared and put it away. Um, now, that doesn't happen normally. Don't worry. Phones are normally very, very safe. But why did I tell you that? I think it's a good image to have in our head for our series in Acts. We've called the series The Challenging Power of the Gospel. Paul and his friends have been going around telling people the gospel, the news about Jesus. And we heard last week it was powerful. It spread and it grew in power. It's gospel power. And it's gone into these other places. And these places are places of worldly power, these cities. And the thing is, worldly cities of worldly power, they can't process gospel power properly. So what happens when gospel power collides with worldly power? Well, it can go boom. And that's what happens in our passage today with this riot in Ephesus is when the gospel clashes with the culture in a big way. And Luke's been telling us what happens when Paul moves from place to place to place. And he finally, he saves this one for last because Ephesus is the big city. Ephesus is a place of power. Ephesus is a huge city. It is the capital of Asia Minor, so it's uh, where, where the proconsul lived, so it was politically powerful. You can see that, you might not see on the map, it's, it's on this coast, it's a trade route, so lots of people come in and buy and sell, there's lots of money in the city, so it's got lots of uh, money power, to put it like that. It, it's also a, a place of religious power, it's got a big temple to Artemis, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world. So lots of people come there to worship, so it's politically powerful. It has a theatre that can hold 24,000 people, a magnificent building. According to the ancient writers, Ephesus was second in power and size only to Rome. This is one of the biggest, most powerful places in the world. And so what happens when the gospel collides with this place of power Boom! There's a riot. It's explosive. And Luke wants to tell us a few things about this riot, I think, to help us understand why it happens and what we need to learn from it. I'm going to say four things, and I'm going to go through them quite quickly. So here's the first one. Christianity brings trouble with it. Christianity brings trouble with it. Verse 23 about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is a, a way of talking about Christianity. So Christianity comes into Ephesus and trouble follows. A great disturbance follows. Luke wants us to know that when Christians go out into the world and take the gospel message, often trouble follows. That doesn't mean there's going to be a riot everywhere you go, but trouble follows when the gospel goes out. And here it is a riot. This man, Demetrius, who makes a lot of money making temple statues, 
Uh, he's losing business. So he whips up the crowd. It's all Paul's fault. Paul's a baddie. Points at Paul. Gets a big crowd to, to become an angry mob. They drag some Christians off to the theatre. They make a ruckus there. They haul them on the stage. Why are you doing this? They won't let them speak. And eventually the officials have to come in and calm them all down. But all that trouble comes because Paul and his friends are trying to tell people about Jesus. Christianity brings trouble with it. Point two, Christians get blamed. When Demetrius makes his speech to the crowd in verse 26, see what he says? You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people. Paul's a baddie, leads people astray. And then what happens next? Well, they find two of Paul's friends and they grab them violently and they drag them into the theater and they put the Christians on the stage and tell them to give a defense. It's clear who they think is responsible. It's clear who they think is to blame for all this. It's the Christians. If they hadn't come here, then none of this would happen. Christians get blamed. That's what Luke wants the readers to know. Actually, it's not just Luke. Throughout history, this has been the case. About 150 years after this, there was a man called Tertullian. I think we've got a picture of him. And um, Tertullian uh, wrote something called his Apology, which is his defense of Christianity. And he wrote this. If the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise, if the heavens do not move or the earth does, if there is famine, if there is pestilence, if there is anything whatever, the cry goes up at once. The Christians to the lion. What? All of them to one lion? What Tertullian's saying there is, look, if there's a flood, it's the Christian's fault. If there's a drought, it's the Christian's fault. If there's a plague, it's the Christian's fault. And he's like, it's silly, the, the line at the end about the Christians to the lion. All of them, he's trying to show, how ridiculous are you being? It can't be the Christian's fault that all this stuff's happening, but, but they got the blame. That's been the way throughout history, and can I say it's still the way today? Open Doors is a charity that supports persecuted Christians, and they produce this. It's their world watch list. Uh, it tells us uh, what Christians face in some of the most uh, difficult places in the world to be a Christian. And what's striking is when you read it, how many times there are governments saying, Christians are bad. Christians undermine our way of life. Christians are a threat. Christians are to blame for the troubles that you face. Even today, around the world, our brothers and sisters are facing this blame game. So Luke writes about it 2,000 years ago, but it's still going on today. Christianity brings trouble, and Christians get blamed. But third point, Christians are not to blame. Now, I need brackets here, really. I, I should have a brackets afterwards that says, usually. Okay, because the church, Christians, we've been around for a long time, thousands of years, and obviously sometimes Christians have made mistakes and bad mistakes over the last few thousand years. You might sit there and say, what about the Crusades, or what about this, or what about that? I'm not going to say Christians have had a perfect record at all, but I think what Luke wants us to know is usually, usually it's Christians who are on the receiving end of trouble, not the ones who are causing it. Usually, Christians throughout history have been the ones who've been persecuted and oppressed, not the ones who've done the persecuting 
and the oppressing. And I think any reasonably fair and balanced record of history or of looking around the world today would have to say that was true. On the whole, if I can quote Shakespeare, Christians are more sinned against than sinning. On the whole, they tend to be the targets of violence. And indeed, here in Ephesus, that's the case. There is a riot and the Christians are getting the blame, but they're not to blame at all. Look what Paul does in verse 30. So they've got this mob. They've, they've charged into the theater. There'd be thousands of them there causing an uproar, causing chaos. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Why does Paul want to go in front of the crowd? Because Paul knows that in riots, people get hurt. And Paul wants to calm it all down because he doesn't want people to get hurt. And the disciples won't let him because they're worried if Paul goes into the theater before this crowd, they'll kill him. So much does Paul care about people and care about safety and care about order, he is willing to put himself at risk to calm the crowd down. They are not the actions of somebody who is to blame for a riot. And so when the authorities investigate and the city clerk comes forward, what does he say? You've brought these men here, verse 37. They've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. They've not done anything wrong. Verse 40, as it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we'd not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. It's not fair. It's not right. This attack on Paul and his friends, they've done nothing wrong. Christians get blamed, but Christians are not to blame. So there you go. Christianity brings trouble. Christians get blamed. Christians are not to blame, which I think should give us all a moment to think. If you're a Christian trying to live out your Christian faith, trying to live out your gospel, uh, the gospel we believe, then if you go out into the world there is a great chance that trouble will follow. You might actually find yourself getting into trouble from time to time. What Luke says here is just what Jesus promised. He said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. Are you ready for that if you're a Christian? Are you prepared for it? But also, here's another thing. It's not your fault necessarily. Just because trouble comes for you doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. You might get the blame for something which is not your fault. And I think it's helpful for all of us to know that because we sometimes read stories in the paper about Christians or churches and the very aggressive stories attacking Christians and churches. And maybe there's some justification to some of them. I'm not saying there isn't. But we should bear this in mind, shouldn't we? That sometimes those stories might want to blame Christians and attack Christians even when they've done nothing wrong. It's been happening for 2,000 years, and it happens all around the world today. It's worth us all pausing when we read a story like that, maybe, and saying, well, hang on. Maybe we need to think a little bit more carefully and clearly before we assume that Christians deserve the blame for this, because sometimes they get the blame when they don't deserve it. But I think there are two big questions we're left with from those three points, that Christians bring trouble, Christianity brings trouble, Christians get blamed, but they're not to blame. Maybe your question is, so why? If they're not to blame, why do they get the blame? Or maybe your question is, is it really worth the trouble then? 
Should we just give up on all this? And I think the answer to both those comes in our final points, which is this. Uh, Christianity's message is a threat to the world. And Christianity's message is a threat to the world because Christianity is good news for the world. Now, that sounds like a, a bit of a paradox, but I'll explain it. First, I want to say this. It's Christianity's message that's a threat. Not our actions. We shouldn't be causing violence or oppression or injustice. We should never be a physical threat to anybody else. That's not the way of Jesus. But the message we declare is a threat. Why? Because our message threatens worldly power, worldly ambition, worldly beliefs and ideas, worldly status. The Christian gospel says this, God has become a man. And not just a man, but a poor man. And he lived and he died a brutal death on a cross. And then he rose again and was made king in heaven to set up a new kingdom that is completely different to all the kingdoms of the world because he's a completely different kind of king. And if that is your gospel message, that is such a threat to so many things in this world. The, people, the things that people of this world often live for. And we can see that from Demetrius. When he calls his friends together, what's his real concern? You know we make a good income from this business. Demetrius worries about his wealth, his worldly wealth. But hang on a minute. If your message is that God became a poor man, then how important can worldly wealth really be in eternal terms? If God came and lived among us in poverty, does worldly wealth really matter that much? Maybe you're living for the wrong thing, Demetrius. Uh, in Ephesus, everybody came to worship uh, a God that was made by human hands in verse 26. And the thing about gods made by us is that they're simple, they're easy, aren't they? Uh, if we make a God, our God can fit what we want them to be. We can make them work for us, meet our needs. Our God can be exactly what we want. But if your message is God has come into this world as a man to reveal himself, then you can't make God up anymore. You have to take God as he is. That's a threat if you want to make your own God. And then Demetrius, see what he, what he, uh, how he whips up the crowd in verse 27? There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, the temple of the goddess Artemis will be discredited, the goddess herself will be robbed of her divine majesty. He cares about status, doesn't he? He cares about power and how impressive people look. But if your gospel is that your God became a man and died a brutal death on a cross as an apparent victim then how important is worldly status and power? Uh, do you see how the gospel overturns and upends all those things? The way we might view wealth, the way we might view power, the way we might view religion. It comes along and says, no, you need to change your thinking. You need to change your mind. And the gospel word for that is repent, which is exactly the message Paul has taken everywhere he's gone. You need to repent, you need to turn away and turn to a new way of doing things because God has become a man, a poor man, and died a brutal death on a cross, but he's been raised again to bring in a new kingdom that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. There's a new way of doing things. 
There's a world to come where all the things that the world values, seeks after, and lives for will be overturned. And God has shown us the way by coming and bringing this kingdom in himself. That is the gospel we believe, and it is a threat, but it's such good news. Because worldly ways of doing things just cause more violence and oppression. Whereas God's way of doing things will bring in a world of peace forever. That is the gospel hope. That is the message Paul took. It's the message we're going to remember in a moment as we come to the Lord's table. And it's a message we're going to sing about now. As the bands uh, come up. Uh, and it'd be good just to still our hearts and minds for a moment. I'll pray. Uh, and let's remember how precious this gospel is as we come before the Lord's table. How it does overturn the ways and values and structures of the world. And therefore it is worth all the trouble that might come with it. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus into this world as a man. Though rich, he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. You brought him into the world so that we might see your glory through him. A glory that looks unlike worldly glory. A power that looks like a man dying on a cross. And yet that power, so different to worldly power, will ultimately have the final say and the final victory. We long for it to do so. And we pray that our lives might reflect it. In Jesus' name, amen.